Let's pray together. Father, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are infinite and eternal, and yet you look down upon us made from the dirt, and you care so mightily for us. You care enough to create us. You care enough to come down and open the door to fellowship with you. You care enough to give us your word, and you care enough to give us merciful warnings. And so I pray today as we look at your son in this parable, battling with the religious leaders and warning them that the warning would come through the 2,000 years in between us and them and hit our ears. And if there's anyone in here who might be walking in false assurance, who might have misunderstood the gospel, who might have misunderstood what does it mean to be a child of the living God? What does it mean to be the people of God? What does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom? That you would correct that, Lord. That you would open their eyes and reveal their folly. And I pray that for those in here who are true citizens of the kingdom, who are true children of you, Father, who have trusted in your Son, that you would not allow false condemnation to creep in, that the warning, uh, that its strength that Jesus gives would not cause us to be vulnerable to the devil's temptation to doubt our salvation, but rather we would hear the wonderful words of Romans 8 ringing in our ears, who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And so I pray, quite simply, Lord, as as we often pray, that you would do the supernatural that you would do what I cannot do. You would do what we cannot do. We can't muster up the strength to do. You would change hearts and lives, whether that's taking dead hearts and making them alive for the first time today or taking hearts that you've made alive by your spirit and just setting the eyes of our hearts on your son in a way that changes us and makes us look more like him because we see his glory and wonder before you bring us home and we forever have our eyes, not with faith, but with sight, set on your son's wonderful face. And we behold his glory and wonder for all eternity. Please do that, Father, in our midst this morning by the power of your word and by the power of your spirit, I pray in your son's name, amen. We've been walking through the gospel of of Matthew for some time, and a few weeks ago, we entered into kind of the the hinge point of the whole gospel. We we had spent the first 20 chapters covering about 33 years, and finally, when we got to chapter 20, when we got to Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, the narrative slows way down, down, and we're going to spend eight chapters in one week. In one week, we saw Jesus come into Jerusalem, the crowds outside the city praising Hosanna, and the doors to Jerusalem swing open, and those who should welcome in and celebrate their wonderful king that they've been waiting for from Genesis 3 receive him with a cold welcome and actually receive him with rejection. And over the past three weeks, this is our third week in a row where we're just looking at one back and forth between Jesus and the Pharisees. To refresh our memory, look at Matthew 21, verse 23. And he, Jesus, entered the temple, and the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. 
and said to him, by what authority do you do these things and who gave you this authority? So Jesus enters into Jerusalem. The King of Kings has finally come. The promised Messiah King has finally come and the religious leaders who should recognize him, who should know who he is and who should say, finally take over, now come and they oppose him. He's walked into the temple courts. He's teaching. The great crowds are gathering around and they're showing up. And here's the key question. Which one of us, you or the religious leaders, gets to speak for God? Which one of us has authority? We're bona fide. We've got the diplomas on our wall. You've rocked up here. You're a homeless rabbi. You start flipping over our temple. Who do you think you are? That's the key question. And then we entered in the past three weeks to these parables where Jesus over and over again is giving these stories of what's happening before their very eyes. How the Father has given promises, the King has come, and those who should be accepting him are actually rejecting him. And in that rejection, that actually opens the door for the true people of God to come in. So we saw a couple weeks ago with Carl, the parable of the two sons where someone says, go and work. One son says yes and doesn't. Somebody else says no and does, and Jesus says, which one of them was faithful? The second. Last week, Lee gave us the parable of the vineyard where a master plants a vineyard. He hires tenants to to work it and keep it, and then he sends servants whenever the the harvest is ready, and the tenants mistreat the servants and even kill some, and then asks the Pharisees, what's going to happen when the master goes to these tenants? Well, he's going to bring judgment and destruction, and today, we're going to see the third parable picking up on this very theme, and Jesus is going to extend it a little bit, a parable of the king throwing a wedding feast for his son. And maybe a question that you're asking is why do we, 2,000 years later, in a church need to listen to this, right? We're not first century rabbis, in case you didn't know, right? We're not first century rabbis, and Jesus is rejecting them. What does this have to do with us? And I want to show you, and Jesus is going to show us that the mistake that the religious leaders of his day are currently making is a mistake that is made by millions of professing Christians today. And it may be being made by people in this room. It may be being made by you. And so we ought to hear this heavy warning with sober minds and open ears because in this very heavy warning, and it is a warning, we have a very merciful Savior saying, don't go that way. An indifferent Savior doesn't care about turning you away from the cliff, and thankfully Jesus is not an indifferent Savior. He very much cares about turning you away from the cliff. So in these words that we might have the reaction of, isn't that a bit harsh? I want you to see the mercy as they, the warning comes from the lips of Jesus. So in this parable, he's going to give us this warning. We'll see three specific things in the parable. An invitation from the king. An invitation from the king. Second, we'll look at the rejection of the king. And then third, we'll look at the warning. What is this warning of the king? So let's look at this first part. Open up this parable and Matthew 22, verse 1, if you have your Bibles, let's look at the invitation of the king. Verse 1, and again, Jesus spoke to them, so the crowds and the religious leaders who were there, there's this massive crowd around him, spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven, this thing he's been preaching about all through Matthew, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast 
for his son. So he's giving us the scene of the parable up front. We have a king of a land who's preparing a wedding feast for his son. And you, you know that even in our culture, weddings are a huge celebration. Maybe it's like the biggest celebration of our lives. It's, it's kind of the first big shift of our lives. If you're married, you go from being in your parents' home to living with someone else or going by living by yourself to living with someone else. It's often the height of love, right? You're getting to marry the love of your life. All your emotions is merging with your practical plans, things like that. And we go to great lengths to celebrate. Right? We pick a beautiful venue. We pick nice clothes. It's the prettiest that we make ourselves look probably for our whole lives, right? We, we, we pick the best food. We hire a DJ who knows what he's doing. We hire a photographer to take pictures, and those pictures are the very pictures that are going to hang on our wall in our home for the rest of our lives. People bring gifts, right? It's this great time of celebration, and I want to tell you our celebrations have nothing on the weddings of Jesus' day. They don't come close, The weddings of Jesus' day was a party for days and days and days. It was a feast that, on average, would last for a week. And you would come, and you would stay, and you would celebrate with all your might. So that's what's happening here. And on top of that, who's throwing this party? The king. Guaranteed, it's the best food. It's not just what you can afford within your budget. There is no budget. No expense will be spared. It's the king throwing a wedding feast for his Son. That's the scene that we have here with Jesus. So I want you to see two things immediately. One, one, the background is the invitations to this wedding, this is often missed, have already gone out. So look at verse three. And so the king makes this feast, and the king sent servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. Okay, so notice, they're not being invited for the first time. Invitations have already gone out. They've been received. Yes has been RSVP'd. Now the servants are going out just to say it's dinner time, right? The, the, the dinner bell is being rung, right? This is pre-evite, where it sends you the automatic email that won't come for a little bit later, right? So the servants are going and saying, hey, you've said yes, you've received your invitation. It's time. The feast is being prepared. In fact, it's ready, okay? So the people who are being communicated with have already received their invitation. They know what's going on. Notice it's those who were invited. And the second thing, notice the king's motivation, we're going to have some struggles. I just, I just, I assume we're going to have some struggles with some of the king's actions if you're anything like the majority of the people who read this passage. And so I want to show you over and over again the king's character and the king's motivation. What's the king's motivation for sending out his servants to draw people into joy? To draw people into the celebration, into the feast. He's not summoning them to jury duty. He's drawing them into the king's feast. Okay, so that's the scene. That's the invitation of the king. There's this great anticipation. The king has spared no expense. He's prepared this great feast. He's now sending out his servants. Come, let's celebrate. And what do we see next? Let's look at the rest of verse 3. He sends out his servants, but they would not come. The servants get to the invited guest, and they won't come. They say, no. And so now this brings us into our second turn in the story, the rejection of the kings. King sends out his servants and the invited guests refuse to come. Now we would say, if you RSVP yes 
and just don't show up. You don't change that RSVP later. You just don't show up. That's rude, right? We would consider that somewhat rude. Now, they're saying yes and not showing up to the king's feast. This, most commentators say, this already is an act of treason. It's not just rude. This is a treasonous insult to the king. So how is the king going to react to this? He's prepared all these great things. They've said yes. They're not keeping their word. This is a treasonous insult. How is the king going to react? Look at verse 4. And again, he, the king, sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. How does the king react to this slap in the face that he's just received from the invited guests? He pleads with them to come. He sends more servants. He urges them to come. He sends the servants with an enticing description. Everything's ready. I've killed not just one fatted calf, like in the prodigal son. I've killed several fattened calves, right? The brisket has been smoking for days. The bread is fresh out of the oven, right? It's, it's even sourdough. There's been an army of Instagram influencer moms who have been stretching and folding like crazy. It's ready. The best wine has been brought out of the cellar, that wine that you keep only for the most special occasion. You see what the king's doing. Come. He's trying to get their mouths watering. Come to the feast. That's what he does. That's his first reaction. Now let's see how these guests respond to being invited to the greatest party of their lives. Verse 5. How do they respond to the king's urging? But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm another to his business, while the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. So we see two reactions. We see just indifference, pays no attention. It's as if the servants aren't there. They go back to working on their farm. They go back to working in their business. They just go about their day. They just don't care. That's the first reaction we see. The second reaction is one of violence. They seize them, they treat them shamefully, they either mock them publicly or strip them naked, or they kill them. They kill the servants. Now, again, in any society, when someone brings you a warm invitation, violently mistreating them would be considered not great. Again, these are the king's servants. And in Jesus' day, how you treat a messenger, how you treat a servant, is tantamount to how you treat the king. You may remember the famous opening scene or early scene in the movie 300 when the Persian messenger comes to King Leonidas and he's basically saying, hey, Persia's here and we're going to kind of own everything. And Leonidas draws his sword and what does the messenger do? He says, whoa, this is heresy. No one treats messengers this way. And Leonidas says those wonderful words, this is Sparta. And he kicks him down the hole and all the Americans were like, yeah, that's what we did when we threw that tea in the ocean, right? We love that stuff. Now... Leonidas is in that moment declaring war on Persia. Why? Because how he is treating the messenger, the servant, is how he is treating the king of Persia. Now, Leonidas is game for it. His sword is drawn. He wants that. What about these men? So they treat them violently, and then we see the king's response in verse 7. And the king was angry, and he sends this time not servants, but troops and destroys those murderers and burns their city, which is a way of totally destroying 
a place. You see that uh, in when Israel is taken captive by Babylon. The last act of destruction is they burn their city. They burn the temple. Rome will do this to Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so that's what Jesus is pointing to in this parable. Now, this is the first kind of judgment we see in this passage. There's another one that people have more problems with, but people have problems with this one. And I'll go to your wedding and you're going to kill me, right? Uh, there's another one we'll look at in a little bit where a guy gets thrown into hell for not having the right clothes on. I'll explain it when we get there. But overall, that's why people have action, problems with this king's action. Isn't this too severe? In fact, there's even some commentators who have tried to kind of radically reinterpret this whole parable to make the king the bad guy and the people the king is persecuting are actually the good guys who are holding out, uh, which is a bit silly to do just because we're uncomfortable with something. So, but it's worth asking that question is this too severe? Is this an overreaction? Is this a disproportionate response? And I think uh, a couple things we need to look at is, number one, again, look at the patience and the urgency of the king. Look at his character. Does he kill them immediately when they say no? He could have. Does he? No. He's patient with their ridiculousness. And not only does he just try again, he urges them, please come. Everything is ready, please come. Again, he's not inviting them to jury duty or a, you know, Excel spreadsheet seminar. He's inviting them to the feast of his son. He's very patient with them. His character is on full display in this parable, but it's a character of patience. It's a character of mercy, you might say. He's not a harsh king. And then the second thing we need to see is one of the things happening to us in our own hearts when we ask those sorts of questions, isn't this too severe, is a recognition or it ought to, it's a display that we don't understand the majesty of the king. Or if you want to say it a different way, the holiness of God. The punishment of an offense depends on the majesty of the one who's offended. If I slapped you in the face, you know, there's consequences for that. You might slap me back and be stronger than me, right? You might leave the church. You might call the police and have me arrested. And I go to jail for a little bit, right? Now, if I go try to slap the president in the face, I think my consequences are going to be worse. I don't think my palm is going to get to his cheek before I'm dropped, right? Maybe forever dropped, right? This isn't just an insult. This is an insult to the king. There's a famous... Uh, rant, I guess you could call it, by R.C. Sproul a couple years ago that it's, it's just like the internet was like, thank you, and then shared it for years, uh, where he was on stage during, I guess, the Ligonier Conference, and he was on a panel, uh, I think it was towards the end of his life, and he would preach with an oxygen tank, it's just so awesome, R.C. Sproul's the best, but somebody asked a question during this panel uh, where they said, why was God's punishment to Adam and Eve so severe in the garden? I mean, they just eat some fruit. Why was kicking them out of the garden and all the cur why was that so severe? And Sproul began to boil for a little bit and he grabbed the mic and he said, time out. The punishment was too severe. This creature made from the dirt defied the holy and everlasting God even after that God had said to him, on the day of you eat of this fruit, you will die. And instead of dying, he lives another day. And that God actually clothes him in his nakedness. 
And the curse that God pronounces, the worst part of the curse will ultimately fall on the serpent, not on him. And the punishment was too severe. What's wrong with you people? And there's the meme, right? What's wrong with you people? And he said, I'm serious. Everyone laughed. And he did not. He said, I'm serious. This is what's wrong with the church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. We have a natural assumption that we're pretty good. We're trying our best, and therefore God should act accordingly. And all that shows is a gaping hole in our understanding of his infinite holiness and our infinite depravity. One sin against an infinitely holy God is worthy of infinite punishment. And on top of that, God could have pun- the king could have justly punished them around one. He's patient and he's merciful. So I don't think the punishment is too severe. I don't think Jesus thinks the punishment is too severe because Jesus is very well aware of the infinite majesty of his father, of the king. So we see this. This is the first punishment, just like last week. When the hired servants, when the tenants treat the servants badly and kill them, just punishment comes to them. When they reject the king, death and destruction is what awaits them. So what's Jesus doing? Again, in the context, as he's sitting uh, in the temple courts teaching the people, what's he doing? He's showing the religious leaders in particular we rebelled and God sent covenants and promises. He sent out the wedding invitation saying, I want you to be mine. I want there to be a way for us to have a relationship. And Israel said, what did they say at the bottom of Mount Sinai? All this and more we will do, right? They RSVP, yes, to the covenant with God, to the invitation. And as they stray, what do we see throughout the Old Testament? God sends prophet after prophet and after prophet. And are they treated well? Does Jeremiah have a good life? Does Ezekiel and Isaiah have a great life of people just saying, oh, preach to me, please? No. They're mistreated, they're beaten, they're treated shamefully, they're killed. And now God has sent John the Baptist, and how have the religious leaders reacted to him? And now God has even sent his son, and they are literally in the process of planning, how can we kill him? And Jesus is saying, you should expect one thing, O you who claim to speak for God, death and destruction, judgment. You should expect nothing more than just judgment on your sin and on your rejection of the king. And so as Jesus is showing this, he's showing us two key things about sin. Two key things we need to see about sin. Number one, the essence of sin isn't just rule breaking. The essence of sin is that it is a rejection of God as king. The essence of sin is not just law-breaking, rule-breaking, although that is sinful. It's fundamentally rejection of God as king. Is Jesus saying in this parable, murder is bad, and that's why those guys got killed? No, he's saying, what's their ultimate offense? They've rejected the king. Their murder is a sign of rejection of the king. Their going to their farms is a sign of rejection of the king. It's all about they've rejected the king. Adam and Eve in the garden is God like, I just didn't want you to taste that fruit. You broke a rule, or is it Adam and Eve saying, I want to be the one, not you, who determines what is good and what is evil. I don't want to sit under your authority and let you tell me, do and don't. I want to say, do and don't. I would like to sit on your throne. That's what they're doing. As they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they're rejecting God as king. I want to rule my own life. I want to be king over my own life. That's the first thing Jesus is just kind of showing us about sin, the 
core element of it. The second thing he is showing us is the stupidity of sin. Sin makes you dumb. Write that down. The stupidity of these people, of the invited guests, is on full display throughout this passage. Number one, it seems like they don't think there's going to be consequences for their actions. It seems like they think nothing bad's going to happen to them if we just ignore the king, if we just go about our day as if the king doesn't exist, and even if we kill his servants. There's only one answer for that sort of mindset. Dumb. Stupidity. They think there's no consequences, and even worse than that, what are they going to such great lengths to avoid? What are they stiff-arming the servants to avoid? What are they killing the servants to avoid? The king's feast, the greatest party they would ever attend. They're working hard to make sure they don't eat the best food ever cooked, which is dumb. Imagine I came to you after this service and said, hey, I uh, somehow I, I got a hold of two tickets to the Super Bowl at Super Bowl Sunday uh, and actually two sideline passes. There's a private jet waiting for us right now to take us to the Super Bowl. We get to stand on the sidelines with the players. In fact, we get to go to whatever sideline that we like. We can wear a Chiefs jersey if we want. We can wear a 49ers jersey if we want. For dinner, there's a three-star Michelin chef that's going to cook for us. After the game, there's a private concert that Taylor Swift is going to give us. And after the game, we get to go to Disney World with the MVP. What do you think? And you look at me, and you punch me in the face as hard as you possibly can. Right? That's mean. You ought not to. But that's just dumb, right? I'm working really hard to keep myself from joy. That is dumb, and that's exactly how sin makes us. That's exactly how sin makes us think. It doesn't just make us blind. It makes us stupid. There will be a punishment for your sin, guaranteed. As I heard one pastor say, every single one of your sins will be punished eternally, either in hell or on the cross. There will be a punishment for your sin, guaranteed. Sin will bring destruction to your life, guaranteed. And sin will rob you of actual joy. Sin will turn you away from the only bread that satisfies. Guaranteed. Over and over again, Jesus is showing us. These men are going about their farm or they're going back to their business because they think that's more worth their time. That's more satisfying rather than the king's feast. And what they're, what they're not getting is that all the promises of this world, all the pleasures of this world are false and fleeting All the promises, all the things the world would offer you are false pleasures and they're fleeting pleasures, right? And I I could show you a trillion, not a trillion, a lot of Bible verses. Hyperbole is not that great. I could show you a lot of Bible verses about this, but let's just be honest. Doesn't our experience scream this, that this world doesn't satisfy? You and I live in the day where you can literally create and present the perfect life. You can filter away every blemish, You can have that steam coming off of your cup in the picture right next to the open Bible and present to the world, right, all the right things about your life. And what does the data show us? We're more miserable than ever. 
Suicide rates and depression rates have skyrocketed. Doesn't our experience just scream that? You get the praise of man, either because you're the funny person or you're just the cool person. That's great. It feels good. Now, guess what? You got to keep it. And if you're the funny person, you better not ever tell a bad joke because otherwise that praise might turn to hate. And you better keep cranking out jokes because that, that praise might turn to boredom. And I guess that was just one funny night with them. All of a sudden, the praise of man has become a prison. Or you actually get it and you keep being the funny person, you keep being the cool person, but it never really satisfies you. You got to get more and more and more and more and then you're exhausted and you die. That's the promises of this world. It happens every time. Our experience screams it. The roaring 20s are always followed by the Great Depression. And yet, we try over and over and over again to go after those false promises of the world. Why? Because sin makes you dumb. Jesus is showing you. Sin will blind you. It will also lower your IQ. So let's look at ourselves in light of these men. What are the things we're saying no to the king's feast to run after? What are the things in your life, the false promises that you're clinging to so that you don't have to go to the king's feast. And you might say, hang on, okay, let's pump the brakes. I haven't killed anybody, right? I'm not opposing Jesus. We're in church after all. And I would say, look at the range of the rejection we get here. You don't have to be a hardcore atheist killing evangelists in order to reject the king. Just be busy. Just have a full calendar and be preoccupied and not have enough time. Go to your farm. Go back to your business, right? Hard work, things we even value is a form of rejection in this parable. Just be busy. What are the things you're running to away from the feast? What are you going to? What do you, how, do you, how do you feel your spare moments? What is the driving force of your life? Because Jesus is going to mercifully say to you, be careful. Sin will make you dumb. And in fact, one of the ways that's an act of mercy is being aware of that, being aware of sin's power over us is such a grace, such a mercy to us. Augustine, one of my favorite prayers of any church history figure, Augustine prays this to God. Cleanse me of my secret faults, O Lord. I fear to deceive myself, lest my sin should make me think I'm not sinful. You see what he's doing? He's like, I know I'll say no to the feast to go back to my farm. Please keep me from doing that, Father. I know my sin will convince me I'm fine. I'm pretty good. There's worse people than me. There's murderers over there killing servants. I just said no. Please protect me from that, oh God. Be aware of it. That's part of the warning. Be aware of sin's power over you. And most of all, maybe Jesus is saying it, just don't miss the feast. In the gospel, you have been invited to the feast the king's feast. And so often we are preoccupied to miss it. Uh, a quote from C.S. Lewis, you've heard me quote before. Lewis knew this. I don't know if he knew this parable well, but he knew this truth well. The gospel is unblushing in how many amazing things it offers us. The love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. And we often don't give a second thought to it. He says this in his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory, if we consider the 
unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of reward promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. So God doesn't look at you and say, tamp down those passions, be more more. He says, no, 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 you're not passionate enough. Your desires aren't inflamed enough. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like ignorant, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The king has thrown a wedding feast for his son and you're invited. There's a holiday at the sea waiting for you. And here's maybe the most basic application point. Go put down the mud pie. Don't go back to the farm. Don't go about your business as if the king doesn't exist. Don't oppose him, certainly, but don't just be so busy that you've got no time for him. There is a wonderful feast waiting for you with King Jesus. Don't reject the king. Don't reject the king. That's the second point. Third turn we're going to see in this story. So we've seen the feast. We've seen the rejection last, the warning. And you're like, that wasn't the warning? Oh, my goodness. That wasn't the warning. It's a warning, but Jesus is going to take it a step further. Verse 8. Then, back to the king, the king said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited are unworthy. They are not worthy for the feast. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So the king now says, go, send invitations to who? Everyone, right? Go to the roads, go to the main roads in ancient cities. That's, that's where just everyone would gather, specifically a lot of poor and, and homeless because there'd be a lot of foot traffic so they could ask. And so the servants just go out, they invite everybody, uh, both good and bad, right? So very unexpected. The first group, that's the expected group. Religious leaders, we expect them to be invited. Now, second group, I don't expect uh, the good and the bad to be invited to the king's feast. But again, that's what Jesus has been showing us over and over again. Matthew 21, Jesus said to them, surely I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes will go into the kingdom of God before you, he says to the religious leaders. Or John 1, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So the invitation goes out to the unexpected. Now, the parable could stop here and it would be pretty identical to last week. The, the wicked tenants are thrown out and, and now new people are going to come in. The true people of God are going to come in. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He wants to give us one more warning. Verse 11, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment and said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, to the servants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness, that place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the king shows up to the wedding, looks it over, which you would expect, right? He doesn't know the guests. So he looks over, he finds a man without wedding clothes on, asks him how he got in. The man doesn't respond and he throws him out into the outer darkness to weeping and gnashing of teeth, which in Matthew is an image for hell. 
And so if you had a problem with the first judgment, you certainly have a problem with this second judgment of the king. You're like, okay, this guy could be homeless because he's not dressed well enough. You're just going to throw him out. What did you expect, O king, right? And so let me explain a little bit what's going on here. Uh, In Jesus' day, especially in the king's courts, there would have been servants at the door welcoming people in to kind of check their appearance, to make sure they're ready for the feast so they don't walk in unready. And, And every commentator universally says, this man could have gotten garments, Either he had them or the king could have provided them. But the only reason he does not have a wedding garment on is because he's refused one. Notice even how the friend asks, or the the king asks, he calls him friend, and then he says, how did you get in here like this? Someone should have stopped you or or provided for you. This this ought not to be. And in fact, speechless, that, that term that he was speechless carries this idea of he's exposed He can't say anything to get him out of this problem because he's caught, right? You round the corner, kid is arm deep in the cookie jar, chocolate on their face. You say, you eating cookies? What are they going to say? No, right? They just stare at you with big eyes, right? They're speechless. Why? Because they're exposed. That's what's happening here. This man is like the first group. He's rejecting the king. He'll come to the banquet, sure, but his way He'll reject the king's clothes. He'll wear whatever he wants to wear. He'll come to the king's feast, but his way, not the king's way. That's what's happening here. So again, this this judgment we see from the king is a just judgment on this man's rejection. So he throws him out, and then Jesus says, verse 14, for many are called and few are chosen. Many are called Few are chosen, saying, many are called, many are invited. It's actually the same Greek word. Many are invited to the feast. Few actually get to enjoy the feast. Few actually enter into the kingdom of heaven. This idea that the message goes out, but few are chosen by God. And we don't have time to dive deep into the doctrine of election. I'll just say for you, providentially. Uh, Lee taught uh, this morning uh, in our theological equipping class on elections. So if you, if you want to great treatment of that truth. I just tell you to go back and and listen to it. It's one of the best teachings on election I've ever heard. Uh, And so you could do that. I'll just say, this is exactly how we see the gospel going forth throughout the scriptures. We've already seen this with the parable of the sower. The sower throws seed everywhere and it hits four different types of soils. One soil, birds immediately snatch it up. Three soils, a plant springs up, right? They look like they're going to the feast and then one is choked out by thorns and one has no root, and the sun scorches it, and one bears fruit. So we see this idea. Many are invited. Some even come to the feast. Only one feasts with the king. This is exactly how we see the gospel going forth in Acts. I'll just give you a couple passages. Acts 13. This is almost a shot for shot, this exact parable. Okay, Acts 13. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. This is Paul preaching in Galatia. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke boldly saying, this was necessary that the word of the Lord be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside and judged yourself unworthy. What's the first invited guest called by the king? Unworthy. Unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. 
So, uh, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed, chosen to salvation, to eternal life, believed. That is almost a shot for shot of this parable. Invitations go forth, gospel goes forth, Israel, Jews reject it. It goes forth to the unexpected group, the Gentiles, the pagans, right? The good and the bad. And as it goes forth, it takes root in as many as were appointed, as many were chosen, believe. Many are called, few are chosen. One more, Acts 18. Paul goes to Corinth. He's been beaten up in Thessalonica and Philippi. And when he gets beaten up, he typically keeps going. And so he's in Corinth. He's tired. And God comes to him in a dream and says this, the Lord, or, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. In other words, my chosen are here and they haven't heard the gospel yet. Go scatter the seed, go call the many. I have many people in this city who are my people. Okay, so we see this unfolding. Many are called, many hear the gospel, few actually enter the feast, actually feast with the king. And this is getting us to the main idea. This is the warning of this parable. Up until now, it's the same warning as the last one. Here's the new warning. It is not enough to receive the invitation to the feast. It is not enough to be in the presence of the feast. You must feast with the king. It is not enough to hear the gospel message. It is not enough to give lip service to the gospel or fill your life with religious activity. You must live in the reality of the gospel and know the God of the gospel. You see that. It is not enough to hear or even to fill our lives with that sort of religious activity. It's not the same. That's not the same as being transformed by the gospel. Or to say it another way, those who truly receive the call of the gospel live by the gospel. They feast with the king. This man without clothes and the people in the first group are the same. They're rejecting the king in different ways, but they have fundamentally rejected the king. There are many of us who fill our life with religious activity. We're present at every church event. We post on Facebook like crazy, right? Bible verses fill the walls of our home, and it's so that people will think we're godly. It's for you. It's not for the king. There's a massive danger there. That's more dangerous than the murderers. The murderers know they're rejecting the king. This man thinks he's safe. And you have a savior merciful enough to say, don't go that way. Don't sit in the presence of me and not know me. Don't fill your life with religious language, but not know me, not commune with me, not feast with me. The most terrifying passage, I think, in the scriptures is Matthew 7. We looked at it several years ago where there's many who come to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, do we not do all these great things in your name? What does he say? Depart from me, I never, I never knew you. It's not enough to do great things. It's not enough to be moral. There's tons of moral people. Do you know the king? Do you feast with the king? So Jesus is giving us a merciful warning. Go to the feast and feast with the king. So how do you know? If that's heavy on you, if you're, if you're doing some self-examination, how do you know if you've gone to the feast or if you've gone back to the farm? Do you adore the king? 
and do you adore his son? Does your love for the king's son drive everything about you? Do you want to raise your kids to know and love the precious son of the king? Do you work ultimately for the glory of the king's son? Do you know your neighbors ultimately so that you might be a witness to them of the beauty of the king's son? Do you adore the king's son? Those who do, go and feast with him. Those who don't, kill the servants or just stay busy, go back to the farm or stay at the outskirts of the feast and have it their way. Hebrews 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? There is such a wonderful feast with its doors open wide to you. Go put down the mud pies. You have been invited to the holiday at the sea where there is infinite joy. Go. And the last question is, how can we? How can we go? If we know that we are offering up filthy rags, if we're clothed in filthy rags, we don't walk around in our wedding garment everywhere, how can we go to this feast? How can we know that we can go? Well, Jesus, after this fight, is going to keep going in Matthew and is going to eventually go to the cross. And on the cross, he's going to take all of your filthy rags all of your unrighteousness, all of your sin, and he is going to become an unworthy wedding guest. On the cross, he's going to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what's happening in that moment? He's being bound hand and foot. He's being thrown into outer darkness. He's being cast out because of your sin and my sin. The king's eyes have fallen on him And he has seen our rebellion and our rejection, and he's being cast out for us. Why? God made him who knew no sin to be sin. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What's he doing on the cross? He's purchasing for you a wedding garment. He's being cast out so you can be brought in so that you might become the righteousness of God, so that when the king enters the feast and his eyes fall on you, he doesn't see your filthy rags. He sees his son's righteous robes and you hear nothing but come enter into my joy. Come enter into my feast. The picture we get of eternity for believers, do you know what it is? Revelation 19 is the picture as the scriptures are rolling up as we're entering into eternity. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sounds of mighty pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The picture of your eternity and my eternity is a wedding feast with the sun. And it has been granted to you for you to be clothed in fine righteous robes that the sun purchased for you on the cross. So hear me, hear his warning. 
and go adore him. Go feast with the only one who can truly satisfy every longing of your heart. Lay down the silly, time-wasting, life-ruining mud pies that occupy so much of your mind and go into the reality of the gospel this king has purchased for you. Let's pray. Father, You are so wonderful. We love you. We thank you that this is a warning that we are not entitled to, but I pray that we would hear it. There's so many things that could turn our eyes from this, so many things that would make us not stare at the warning, but Father, let us not be so foolish to think that closing our eyes makes the reality of our house burning down cease. And, and more than just fear of judgment, Lord, there, there is judgment. We should be afraid of it. More fear of judgment. I pray that you would just turn our hearts away, turn our eyes to just the wonders of the feast, the wonders of your son, that we wouldn't go to your son because we're scared of hell, but rather we would go to your son because he's worthy and wonderful and that we would live and move and have our being in him. Do that, Father, by your Spirit's power. Only you can. You've done it for 2,000 years. We pray that you do it again in our midst, that we would witness the wonder and supernaturalness of your Spirit's work. I pray in your Son's name. Amen.